Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of the Classical World in a Hundred Objects. In this blog and podcast series, I am tracing the history of the classical world through a hundred objects, travelling all the way from the origins of ancient Greek civilization on the island of Crete to the fall of Rome. Last week, we visited the Cycladic Islands at the heart of the Aegean Sea to trace the story of the Cycladic figurines and the clues they might be able to provide us about the burial practices, the artistic techniques, and maybe even the music and poetry of this 4,000-year-old civilization. Over the past seven days, we have traversed the history of Bronze Age Greece through objects both large and small, ordinary and extraordinary, and found that each of them has a part to play in helping us to piece together the jigsaw puzzle of the past. We have seen a golden death mask thought to belong to a mythical king, a statue of a snake goddess which might provide hints about the ancient gods and their worship, and a tiny blue glass bead which gives us evidence of widespread trade throughout the Mediterranean. We've seen how writing developed as part of a complex palatial bureaucracy and how paintings preserved on the walls of Aquatiri, the Pompeii of the Aegean, can tell us crucial details about ancient sea travel. And we've watched as, one by one, the palatial centres of Mycenaean civilization fell, apparently taking their culture, their writing and their art with them, and how recent finds like the Dark Age tombs at Lefkandi are still complicating that narrative today. In today's episode, we're going to be moving from the Dark Age of Greece to the middle of the 8th century BCE, where, 500 years after the collapse of Mycenaean civilization, a remarkable change is about to happen that will alter the course of Greek history forever. Terracotta Crater, from Attica, Greece, 750 to 735 BCE. In comparison to the figurine of the male harp player we were looking at last week, today's object is enormous. It's over a metre high and 72 centimetres in diameter around its rim. It's called a crater an ancient Greek term for a kind of large mixing jar, where wine would have been mixed together with water before serving. This vase is special for many reasons, but most of all perhaps because of how it's painted. The surface is covered in images and patterns painted in black slip against the earthy red terracotta of the vase. It's split into several horizontal bands running all the way round, most of which are filled with geometric motifs such as spirals, zigzags and meanders. But the two largest bands are filled not with patterns, but with figures. Figural representation is something we haven't seen in large quantities for about 400 years, and yet from around 900 BCE on, vases like this one are increasingly present in the archaeological record. So what's happening here, 
And what can the figures depicted tell us about the radical changes that are sweeping ancient Greek society in the 8th century BCE? Let's start with the top band of the vase. It's dominated by a figure lying on its back in the centre upon what looks like a bed. You can see the flat surface of the bed frame, the four sturdy legs, and even a small pillow beneath the reclining figure's head. Floating over it is a chequered cloth, which has been raised above the figure to reveal the body beneath. A second figure is seated on a chair at the end of the bed, with a third tiny figure upon its lap. Either side, depicted with frontal triangular chests and arms raised to their heads, stands a line of twelve further figures, each of them with their heads turned to gaze at the central scene. This is, in fact, a prothesis, the lying out of the dead, in which the deceased was placed upon a high bed or bier. The chequered cloth, raised by the painter so that we can see the dead man's body, is a burial shroud. The person seated at the end of the bed is most likely his wife, with their child upon her lap, and the women either side are mourners, hands raised to tear at their hair. The fine context of the vase does much to explain the scene, because it was discovered marking an early ancient Greek grave. What's fascinating about this vase isn't only what it tells us about early Greek burial customs. It's also a crucial testimony to a developing aristocracy which was flourishing all over Attica around the 8th century BCE, a wealthy upper class who could afford to commission monumental works of art to commemorate them. It matches a pattern that we see all over Greece in this period, the development of city-states, or polis as they were known, the rise of hero cults local to specific polis, and the development of large temples and sanctuaries to the Olympian gods, including the foundation of the ancient Olympic Games in 776 BCE. The wealth required to commission such a substantial artwork, as well as the vision it portrays, a high-status man at the head of a family unit, mourned by a coterie of women and slaves, hints at a burgeoning class of aristocratic males, situating themselves within a hierarchy where men are honoured as warriors and heads of household in life, and glorified as heroes in death. This interpretation is only strengthened by the second band, beneath the prothesis scene. Here we see a repeating pattern of warrior heroes, either standing with figure of eight shields in their hands, crested helmets on their heads and carrying spears, or perched on chariots pulled by teams of horses. What I find amazing about this scene, and it still continues to enthrall me even though I've studied this vase for many years, is that we see here encapsulated the beginnings of a sort of historical memory. Archaeological evidence from the period in which this vase was created, around the 8th century BCE, shows that figure of eight shields were not in use at the time this scene was painted. But paintings from the Mycenaean period show that they were used in the late Bronze Age, around 500 years earlier. The same seems to be true of chariot fighting. So what we seem to have here is a kind of conscious reflection back to the historical period of Bronze Age Greece, right next door to a depiction of a real-life 8th-century aristocrat. The connection that's being created here between the deceased man and the legendary hero seems to me to be one of the first times we see on an ancient Greek object the creation of a historical, deeply-rooted lineage, all the way from mythical hero to contemporary warrior. What's particularly amazing about the kind of historicizing, mythologizing vision presented here is that it connects to one of the most important revolutions of early Greece, the reintroduction of writing. 
As we've seen, the Linear B script, which was used by Mycenaean scribes, was lost with the collapse of their civilization. And it wasn't until increased trade in the 8th century BCE led to contact with civilizations in the East that the Greeks began to develop a new script based on the Phoenician alphabet. One of the most important implications of this new script, for classicists at least, was that poems like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which had survived in oral tradition for hundreds of years, could at last be written down. Looking at this vase, I love to think of aristocrats like the one who commissioned this monumental crater, embracing a similar perspective to that of the poet Homer himself, one that was both deeply rooted in the burgeoning aristocratic and political culture of the 8th century, but one that was also looking back to, and creating a connection to, their mythical shared heroic past, to heroes like Achilles, Hector and Odysseus. Tomorrow on my blog, I'll be travelling to Olympia in Greece to try to trace evidence for the origins of the ancient Olympic Games. Or you can come back here next Saturday for a new podcast on the history of the classical world. This podcast series was inspired by the British Museum and Radio 4's A History of the World in 100 Objects. Music was Little Planet, provided by www.bensound.com. For images of the objects described here, as well as daily blog posts and background details on the history of the classical world, follow me on Twitter and Facebook at eHauserWrites and visit www.emilyhauser.com. Uh-huh.